Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to our Synapse Snips here. We're going to be talking about uh, gems today. We've got Dr. Josh and Marquis with us here. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, gems, and I just want to talk a little bit about the concept of gems. Uh, over the last uh, couple decades working with patients, every once in a while I'd have a patient come in, and they say the same thing. I've got this symptom, and then they tell me what that symptom is, and they say, is that weird? And the first thing that pops in my head is, yes, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's weird. weird, but it's relevant. And, and over time, I'd start to hear these same types of, of things, and people would just relay these really weird observations or, or, or findings or something. Well, it turns out, if you don't dismiss it, and you kind of go down that rabbit trail a little bit, eventually, many times, you find a solution that makes sense. And so I started keeping a list, and I call them my gems list. And uh, they help kind of jump to a certain place. And so I'll, I'll share some stories as we, as we jump into them here, but we're going to share some of our uh, gems that we've uh, seen over the years. And uh, we've got a list of hundreds of them, and they're usually things that you ha- haven't heard uh, heard about or you, you may be experiencing, and it'll kind of help point you in a certain direction. Now, I'm going to say just because you may have one of the symptoms we talk about doesn't mean that this gem is it. It just means that uh, the gem could be one of the things that's lesser known. Usually, they're outliers, uh, but they're also very, very important to know when you're trying to problem solve for people. And... You'll be shocked at what you can find and identify just by listening intently to your own body, but also as a practitioner for us to listen to what people are saying. And as a patient, I want to encourage you guys, if you're in front of someone who is a problem solver, who is open to hearing these weird symptoms, go ahead and express it. If it's in front of a medical uh, provider that has just that blank stare on their face after you say it, they're just not the right fit for you for the for the gems list, I'm going to say. Because <laughs> I get that part of it, too. If they don't think that way, it, it just gets dismissed right away. And I know you guys know what I'm talking about if you've ever um, been a patient expressing some weird symptoms. So don't be afraid to share. I can't tell you how many times people say, I, I don't know if this... This makes any sense uh, with my symptoms, or they? I didn't tell you this because I didn't think it fits, or I. You know, those things are usually important. Uh, yes. What I tell people is their symptoms, like that, even if they're weird, don't happen in isolation. There's usually an answer, even if it's, even if it's dismissed by other people as crazy. I think that you mentioned yes. the other doctor part. A lot of people that go to other doctors, they get trained to not tell their doctors these weird things. Yes. And so they're, you know, they don't say stuff to us. And that even, that even comes out sometimes where we'll work with the patient for months. And then they'll say, oh, by the way, I had this thing happen one time. It's like, <laughs> ah, <laughs> you should have told us that three months ago. Yeah, that's on our gems list. We, we actually know what that is. 
Yeah, so if you guys do have uh, any weird symptoms and uh, uh, what you would consider gems after listening to this podcast, go ahead and send them in. And uh, we will add them to our list if we have answers uh, or talk about them again because we'll be doing uh, gems conversation in the future as well. So go ahead and send those in uh, to us here at Synapse. Uh, info at Official Synapse Works. I know uh, yep. that's probably the best place we to also, send it. Yeah, on our website too, we're improving the podcast page on our website. There is a spot on the bottom of the podcast page on the website where you can submit feedback. And that if you go to our website, officialsynapse.com, on the main menu, there's a media drop-down and podcasts is in there. So go into that page. You can One, you can find these podcasts, all the podcasts, and two on the bottom. It says, hey, have a comment or question or feedback. Uh, that would be a good spot, too, because that would go directly to me versus the info email. Sometimes it gets lost. Yeah. So yeah. on the way through. Yeah. So what's the first gem you want to start talking about? I think we should talk about the anxiety one that you have written. Because with COVID... I've seen a lot of this lately, the hair loss. Okay. So what we have on here, and I'll let you describe it, but hair loss with anxiety or stress, which can be a symptom of a variety of things, but you have a gem that I think is interesting. Yeah, so uh, we found that hair loss with anxiety and stress, uh, the one of the things that we think about right away is copper-zinc imbalances. And zinc and copper are very important to work together, but they also oppose each other. So you have to keep them in balance. And anxiety and different factors can deplete your copper. You can have high copper in your body but not use it. If it's bio-unavailable, it becomes useless to you. Copper is needed for energy, but zinc is needed for digestion, for your stomach to help digest, and also your immune system. In fact, it's one of the key contributors to fighting COVID and, and things of that nature. So with that, um, hair loss with anxiety, whether it's uh, due to stress in life or whatever um, the anxiety is coming from, it's also important to know that uh, there's a disorder out there called pyrole disorder, uh, P-Y-R-O-L-L-E. And a lot of people don't know that they have this disorder. And it has to do with a combination of this uh, zinc deficiency with B6. And B6 is such an important vitamin to help with sleep and, and neurotransmitter development. And so there's an actual disorder out there called pyroli disorder. But when someone comes in and they start, especially women who have hair loss, the first thing we think about uh, when the hair loss is due to anxiety or stress is this pyroli disorder or, or even just trending towards that direction. Yeah, because that disorder is on a spectrum. And yes. There, there have been studies, I think even the, there was a U.S. military study looking at the, the creation of these pyroles. Sorry, I'm going to say pyroles. He's going to say pyroli. Tomato, yeah. tomato. I don't know what it is actually supposed to be, but it's in my head as pyrole. Yes. <laughs> it's in your yeah, I think pyrole. you're right, actually. But I have, no I, idea. have you guys ever done this? I, the first time I read it, I read it as pyroli. Yeah. So it's pyroli forever. <laughs> yeah. I never hear anybody else say it. It's yeah. just how you pronounce it in your yeah. own head. My grandma said patata. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think that's, well, that's wrong. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, sorry, I totally sidetracked us there. Was yeah, that's so right. that um, the creation of these pyrroles—it's a breakdown from red blood cells. It's a normal thing to happen in stress responses. Everybody can have these things develop, but they're usually broken down and cleared from your body with, like you said, zinc and B six. 
if you have an existing deficiency, which we see those two quite a bit being low in people, those pyrroles build up and that can cause neurological consequences. Yeah, there's a whole list of uh, different things that happen to us neurologically, not just anxiety. There's all kinds of different things with sleep that gets disrupted, and uh, there's a personality trait that goes along with that. Hmm. Yeah, the study that was looking at the um, increase in the pyrroles was a cold exposure. So even, oh, yeah. even physical stresses like that can yeah. cause an increase. Mm-hmm. Um, but zinc and copper, I think with, with COVID right now, it's important to keep in mind especially because everybody's taking zinc. I had one person that, that I had this happen. They were taking a bunch of zinc for COVID um, support or immune support, essentially. And we, they had some mental health challenges, so we looked at their copper zinc balance. Their zinc was the highest I think I've ever seen it. <laughs> and their copper, even though it wasn't necessarily low, the ratio was really bad. Yes. You want these to be balanced. And for this person, it was just really out of whack. So we caution people, too. This isn't a matter of, hey, I'm just going to go take a boatload of zinc. Yeah. You don't exactly know what the problem is. Sometimes it can be flipped in the other way where the copper's too high. Yeah, and you've got to be balanced because low copper, you're going to be fatigued. You're going to have poor energy processes. Your hormones are going to be are going to suffer because of that. So all of a sudden, you might be having a switch of uh, uh, mental uh, scenarios where your anxiety or the the mental state that was deficient because of low zinc all of a sudden is now being affected because of hormone compromise from the copper. So it's all about balance. So I just caution people not to be excessive with anything and to just pay attention as you're putting things in. Things may have been a wonderful miracle supplement or drug for you at one point and a year later it may not because of the imbalance it's now creating yeah one other key that i look for with copper is histamine yes so histamine intolerance and the inability to break down histamine um, can be a low copper sign because you need copper for one of the primary enzymes so people with you know rash hives itching those types of issues anxiety alone can be a histamine problem that's a whole other angle to go after it Stomach pain, bloating, indigestion after meals, uh, exercise intolerance, bladder difficulties, congestion, those sometimes can just be a copper problem too. Yeah. Well, and, and that just to point out the complexity of how the body is, anxiety by itself, mm-hmm. if you have high copper, that can induce a fight or flight response and anxiety and mimic anxiety. If you have low copper, one of the outcomes is anxiety. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of variables there, but that's why we do these gems and write them down because even just talking about it, you can see there's complexity there. And uh, when I was learning functional neurology um, from Dr. Carrick, uh, one of my mentors, um, he he had a statement, and it's been true ever since just in in how I, I think about health. He said, as you're, as you're even looking at the nervous system, the nerves, it's, it's basically everything's based on the probability of some of potential. What that means is, as you're actively assessing a nerve, you're changing its dynamic, and then everything beyond that nerve that it communicates with, you just changed. So you have to be aware of the dynamic uh, of what you're assessing. And so as you are changing things neurologically and biochemically, uh, you're changing things downstream as well. And so it's all based on probabilities of some of potential, which for a black and white medical system, that wreaks havoc <laughs> when you want to just align up, which it does eventually when things get to such an extreme uh, level of dysfunction. But yeah. in the beginning, when you're maybe suffering with symptoms, 
it, it really does. It can change. So I see this a lot in new people coming in where they've worked with other practitioners and they said, oh, we put on, well, I was put on a protocol and it was detox, whatever, but I just couldn't handle it. And they just told me to keep going and I couldn't do it. And that was their only answer. Yeah. This is one reason why, especially for sensitive people that we have, we do have or sometimes do need frequent touch points with our team. Because everybody responds to these things differently. You give one thing, like you said, you don't know what the downstream effects are going to be until you give that person something. Even if another person that looks exactly like them, you know, same types of issues, it can be a completely different reaction due to genes, environment, other things they're taking. And we go, you know, I do this a lot where you kind of have to go slow. You have to tiptoe through some things because you don't know where a person is going to break down and it's whether it's brain stuff liver you know, Lyme disease any of those things yeah and that's part of the process of healing is the is the the journey of uh, where's the next step where's the next step yeah a, a set pro- somebody says they have a set protocol that works in every yeah. situation they're wrong yes <laughs> yeah we yeah exactly I agree because we have uh, we have uh, established protocols that the protocol within the protocol is the room to change the protocol yes you we have an outline if you will of what to expect and what to look for and a lot of the things are these gems mm-hmm. when we see a potentially negative reaction we have to first discern is this a true negative reaction or is this a good negative reaction to yeah. what we just did yeah. so yeah that's a lot of, that's a lot uh, uh, right there that that's from one gem one gem one gem <laughs> so what's what's another gem you want to talk about today uh, let's see. Well, we talked a bit about histamine. We've got another thing in here about salicylates and how it can mimic some of those same symptoms. I think that would be worth touching on. So just as a background, again, uh, the histamine issues can be from, you can get those symptoms. I listed a lot of those symptoms. You can get that from either too much histamine being created in your system, in your body, or an inability to process system that you eat or take in. But sometimes we get fooled by that, and there's a big reason why salicylates. I want you to talk a bit about that. Yeah, so the easy way to say this is uh, salicylates are like aspirin, basically. And they there's a lot of foods that are high in salicylates. And some people have a salicylate sensitivity. Say that five times fast. So salicylate sensitivities. <laughs> one time fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one time fast is too much. Um, or toxicity can mimic histamine-related disorders. So it can be very, very, uh, it can be a little easier to avoid salicylates. If you just Google salicylates list of foods, um, you can start to just avoid those foods. And I have a lot of people uh, avoid that and they feel better. Now, generally speaking, that's never the primary thing, but it's uh, a lot of times you have to get them to that point so then you can then discern through what's histamine and what's not. I'm going to go through some salicylate uh, uh, things that have salicylates that might be sneaking in there. Facial cleansers and makeup, number one and number two, a lot of times have high levels of salicylates. Toothpaste, food preservatives, tannins from in beans, dried fruits, nuts, berries, grapes, wine, uh, avocados, broccoli, black tea, and coffee. So if you tend to react to some of those things, you may have a salicylate toxicity or sensitivity problem. That's so hard because there's such an overlap there in is. food categories. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and one of the things that I, I tend to do is uh, we actually carry uh, um, aspirin, and I would actually do muscle testing too just to see if people reacted to the aspirin. Then i pull them off the salicylates and see if there's uh, uh, any type of improvement. 
Uh, generally, we know that there's an increase in the leukotrienes or triens. <laughs> I actually don't say triens. I don't know why it came out that way. <laughs> now you've got, you got me pronouncing everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and uh, it can cause head pressure, migraines, ringing in the ear uh, through the NMDA receptors. The ringing in the ear increases. So a lot of my uh, tinnitus uh, people or tinnitus people <laughs> we're gonna play this game the whole <laughs> podcast now um i'll look at two things i'll look at their coq10 status and i'll look at their salicylates and uh and their omega-3 status actually so those three things are the the big ones but there's an actual mechanism through the mda receptors um because of the inflammatory response secondary to the salicylates um generally speaking uh there are some things you can actually help with that. So you remove the salicylates and you do a top-down approach as far as um, um, improving their inflammatory reactions. The arachidonic acid, uh, you increase their vitamin E, quercetin, licorice, and uh, fish oils, of course, curcumin, and then garlic all seem to help uh, regulate that uh, cascade. So that toxicity issue is something that doesn't take long to clean out. It takes about two to three weeks to, to avoid the foods and then a couple months to bring everything back in. The last thing to improve is the earring. Migraines usually within two weeks, though. Yeah, earring is always tough. Yeah. So you would say that the salicylate issue is a it's an inability to detoxify some of the breakdown products. And then it causes an inflammatory reaction. Response. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it, think about, think about this, a lot of it comes from processing Mm -hmm. when we process stuff uh there tends to be a challenge with how our system can regulate and i've i've had this saying here at sam's for a long time if god made it's good if man changed it just beware because we always think we're doing well and it may help with something but there's almost always a side effect or a downstream effect all you have to do is look at the drug commercials to to see that that there's you know, we make this drug, it saves some lives over here, but there are these other side effects over here. When it's in its, uh, when a food is in its whole form, we tend to have less side effects. If we do, it's usually because of something else that we did to our body to actually break down the natural communication process. I tell people that a lot, where they come in with a sensitivity in an, in an ideal world, that person wouldn't have, for most people, wouldn't have those sensitivities. It's because of these outside influences on our system that are developing those sensitivities. And a lot of people, even if it's salicylates or histamine or what have you, that they have sensitivities to, and that goes for a lot of things, not just those two categories, those often improve as we figure out root root issues of inflammation. Right, exactly. All right, next gem. Should we talk about uranium? Yes. Perfect. So, <laughs> uranium, not something we come across very often, um, but we do heavy metal tests quite a bit, uh, both through urine or blood or hair. There's a variety of ways to look at this. Every once in a while, we get uranium high on a lab test yes. like this. And for a while, we'd scratch our heads and think, you know, what are you eating that is giving you too much uranium? <laughs> yeah. Were, were you... Uh... <laughs> You know, exposed at a, a, a nuclear yeah. uh, plant. But some, or well, and that's that's a, I actually had one person one time where they lived in Colorado near a location that used to do testing. Yeah. So then you would say, well, it could be from that. Yeah. But we live here in Minnesota in an area of high radon. Yes. And so tell us about that connection. 
Well, uh, I actually don't remember where I read this, but um, I read that uh, the breakdown of radon, one of the, the byproducts is uranium. I so, think it's the other way around. Or the other way around? Yeah. yeah. So I actually don't remember where where I read it or anything, but it made my gem list because I'm like, oh, that's interesting because that, uh, that would explain some of the these weird uranium findings on these labs, and I'd never seen anything connected to that. Well, I did... Um, had a patient a couple months back where we were doing the muscle testing. And then usually with muscle testing, it, we don't ever diagnose off it or anything like that. But this person happened to react to uranium, which is not what was, wasn't on our radar at all. Yeah. So we did the lab testing, and it was high uh, and in the hair analysis. So then I just said, well, let's just check your home for radon. And uh, she thought it was the craziest thing because, you know, how, how are those two connected? And yeah. She, she uh, with this particular patient, we'd already found with uh, another gem some other stuff that she always thought like it. She thought it was very cool. And uh, she even left saying, I hope this is really, this is high so that, <laughs> so that we can take care of it, number one, but also just how cool it was that we found this problem yeah. through my body. Yeah. Well, it turns out the radon was very high. And so uh, they had their home checked and um, fixed it. It's a simple fix in the home check as far as just venting the basement. For most uh, most places, but uh, for me, I've probably run into it once or twice a year. It's yeah, not, I've it's had not two a, this year. Yeah, you've had two this year. Yeah, it's not not a lot, but if you guys are ever out there getting tests done and you happen to have this weird uranium thing show up, and the doctor's like, "Oh, I don't know what that what that is. That's weird. Uh, never mind." And and uh, if you happen to live in a place in Minnesota here, it's because of the bedrock, and it actually comes from the earth. So a lot of times, it really depends on. It's regional, if you will. Yeah. So just be aware of that. That's one of those sneaky ones. And there, there are radar detectors that uh, most uh, Home Depots and, and shops like that will actually yeah. Yeah. Uh, sell. So very, very worth it. And radon, long-term exposure can cause quite yeah, a bit so of damage. So, Do you do anything for radon detox? No. It's I, just I really more of an Just venting and exposure. Yeah. And yeah, it breaks down so quickly that if you just get rid of the uh, exposure usually that's enough yeah okay all right done with that gem let's see we've got a couple more in here let's talk let's talk the uric acid thing because i just came across this the other day so uric acid just to set the stage on this one usually people have heard of uric acid on a blood test as it pertains to gout yes gout is a a type of arthritis and usually it affects the big toes a person will get toe pain that's from high uric acid. There's a variety of reasons why uric acid can be high. Sometimes it's genetic. Sometimes it's lifestyle-based. There's a lot of reasons. But sometimes we see it low. Yes. And medically, if you go to a medical doctor and they see it low, they'd probably say, hey, that's great. You don't have a high risk for gout or anything like that. But we have a few specific things that we look for. Yeah. Uh, some of the things are on our radar that are just a little different. This is not across the board. So it's not like low uric acid equals this. Yeah. But this is a potential... Uh, scenario where uh, you can have a molybdenum deficiency. So that one, um, and again, I'm going to say this is funny because when I was first learning, I couldn't say this word when I was first learning this word. I don't know why this is a like phonics with synapse. It is phonics with synapse. <laughs> but I used to, so I could remember for the testing in school, I used to call it Molly B. Denim. So I knew how to spell it right. Yeah. So molybdenum, which is Molly B. Denim, um, basically that deficiency can impair your sulfur detoxication pathways which are very very important and so a lot of people 
who have negative reactions to wine, like you can't, uh, the sulfa drugs or the sulfites that are in wine, this is a potential sign if your uric acid comes back of the molybdenum deficiency. And molybdenum is a very, very important uh, small little cofactor. And if, especially if you're on the lab test, if your MCV levels, which is part of the blood panel, if those are less than 88, um, then you can really uh, increase that uh, that hit on molybdenum deficiency, which then you, because without that, you don't detoxify as well, especially through the, well, through the sulfur pathways. Yeah. I just had that yesterday. A yeah. person came in low uric acid, MCV at 82. Huh? Yeah. And just as a, I know MCV, people are going to scratch their heads and think, what is that? It's a red blood cell test. Yeah. Mean corpuscular volume. Yeah, telling you how big your, big or small your red blood cells are. So it means you've got tiny red blood cells. That can be from iron deficiency yes. as well. Yeah. This person that I saw yesterday didn't have iron deficiency or didn't have low iron, but had the low uric acid, low MCV. Yeah. This can also happen with, um, with mold exposure too. And I think it's one thing that I tell my patients is that at normal concentrations in the blood, uric acid is actually an antioxidant. You need uric acid. Yes. It's not like it's toxic all the time. Yeah. And so when we see it low, sometimes that's an inflammatory marker more generally. And so we see that with some mold exposures. We see that with a few other things. This person I saw yesterday, it's in my head, he lives in a house where we suspect mold too. Yep. So if you look at mold and the potential for poor detoxification because of the molybdenum issue, they can be a big connection. What came first? Yeah. Was it an issue with mold depleting molybdenum and sulfur and all that, or was it the other way around where the person was predisposed to a mold issue because of their deficiency in these minerals? Yeah, one of the other things people may recognize is if you've ever been put on uh, sulfa drugs, and so I know the Bactrim and uh, what's the other one? Septra, uh, if you've had like negative reactions to those medications, a lot of times that's the same thing. That's where the, the sulfa pathway is not working, and that's the molybdenum deficiency. And to Josh's point, it's rarely, rarely a primary issue, but usually depleted because of need, because of something else. So mold and other inflammatory disorders and environmental toxic disorders, uh, just basically being exposed to a lot of these other things over time depletes your system of of the ability to detoxify certain things. And so that one in particular is uh, really important. And these nutritional deficiencies, I'm just going to say this, they're so hard to detect on blood work just by looking at the nutrient. Yeah. So I, I really want to say this part because people will come in and say, my B12 is fine because <laughs> B12 in their serum was fine. And if you're visual, I'm going to try and paint the picture here. If your blood is flowing and the B12 in your blood is normal or high, great. Great or in normal range, that's great. But that B12, for it to actually be useful to your body, has to get out of the blood, get transported to a cell, many different cells, and then be used within that cell, and then be excreted out of the body, the byproducts of metabolism. And all we're assessing is that it's in the blood. We're not assessing that it's actually been used properly by your cells. And there can be a breakdown there where... You just don't have enough inside the cells. So there are different tests that measure the nutrient value of your leukocytes or white blood cells. And that that might be an indication if you have it with uh, the B, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with uh, the, the serum. But again, that's only the white blood cells. If you are deficient, you could have normal blood, normal white blood cell B12, and still be deficient because in the liver because you just don't have enough 
getting to the liver for whatever reason. Yeah. So nutritional deficiencies are very, very difficult unless you're at the full-blown you know, scurvy or beriberi point where you're so deficient you see the global impact. The harder point is when you live in a first-world country and you have a 10% or 20% deficiency. Yes. I, I, want, I mean, the B12 thing is uh, one of my soapboxes a bit because <laughs> of methylation. Yes. Um, I think there's two comments, maybe a gem, if you will. You can have high B12 on a blood test because of liver damage. Yeah. And a lot of times, medical doctors will dismiss this, especially if they're not, especially if they're not supplementing. If you're supplementing B12, it can be high, you know. But if you're not, and it shows up high, and you're told, oh, well, that's good, you know, you're at 1,600, 2,000, that's really good, high B12. Like, well, that's not a good sign. That means that there's some other problem. Yeah. On our standard testing alone, we've got, we do look at B12, but we look at something called homocysteine. Yes. And then we already mentioned MCV. MCV can be off with B12. Yep. It's not uncommon to see normal blood B12 and errors or issues on those other two markers, cluing us into a problem with B vitamin metabolism. Yeah, and I'll oftentimes order a methylmalonic acid after mm-hmm. the fact just yeah. to see, are you using the B12? Because that okay. is that is a marker for uh, efficiency as well. So uh, when it comes to the nutrients... Don't go off of one simple test because it's going to give you a partial indication of what's going on. That's why we, when we look at blood work, we look at a whole bunch of different markers and you're dealing with probabilities of someone potential with these markers as well. You're, you're dealing with probabilities of deficiency though. And uh, uh, that is very, very helpful because we've had scenarios too, going back to the carp, copper, where they actually have high copper in the body, but they're not using it. Yeah. So they're copper toxic and deficient at the same time, yep. which is crazy to think about. Yeah, but we see it quite a bit. But we actually yeah. see it a lot, yeah. yeah. Terribly uncommon. Yeah. Good. That was uric acid? All right. Let's, yes, uh, one of my favorites, actually, uric acid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's discuss next, um, oh, the CRP list. So we just talked a little bit about inflammation. I think we oh, yeah. should touch on CRP. So CRP, C-reactive protein, this is a test that's, performed slightly more often in the routine medical types of testing, especially for individuals with cardiovascular risk. This is a marker of inflammation um, that's usually assessed to say how much inflammation do you have in your heart and your blood vessels. It can be high for other reasons like infections too, uh, but when we see this, it it can be fairly nonspecific. So we have a list of things that we often look for to to clue us in for high CRP. Yes, um, so this list is going to be interesting for people. Uh, C-reactive protein is uh, a pretty good marker for inflammation, like you just said. So with inflammation, we always go to the omega-3 uh, fatty acids. So if you happen to get a high CRP on a lab test, uh, the cardiac reactive protein, I'm going to go through a whole list here of different things that help with that, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Number one, omega-3 fatty acids, um, and then even... Um, we use a product uh, called PRM uh, Resolve, which uh, actually is a, a, even a more specific component of the omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, fiber, moderate intense exercise helps. Vitamin C helps. Anti-inflammatory diet helps. Dropping inches around your midsection or weight loss specific to the midsection that you can measure with your hip-to-waist circumference. Uh, improving that number helps with CRP. Improving your sleep helps with CRP. Decreasing your stress helps with CRP. Being sexually active decreases CRP. And 
uh, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin D, and vitamin K, any deficiency in those scenarios will actually impact CRP. So improving whatever's uh, deficient there. And then reducing your coffee and your green tea intake can also help lowering CRP. Yeah. So there's a lot there to unpack. There is a lot. And, and this is why we tell people it's not an obvious reason for why the CRP is elevated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of these are lifestyle-based things. Yes. I think if we clump all of those together, we've talked about that stuff quite a bit on other podcasts already. But I think it's worth saying again, the stress and lifestyle and diet types of things can drive inflammation. And this is a good example. You can see this on blood work. Sometimes it's just as simple as don't eat junk, get better sleep, yeah. reduce stress. And those aren't easy things necessarily, but the, sim- the simple you know, baseline things. Yeah, and I-, I want people to also know that there, there are 102 diagnosable sleep disorders per Stanford University. And we know of three or four, and we really don't pay attention to a lot of them, but sleep disruption is really, really a key. And for a lot of the guys listening to this, I know they heard one thing from that list. Yes, sexual activity. Sexual activity, activity. Yeah. yes. You got to do more than that. <laughs> yeah, it's not just that one. <laughs> not, not just that one. <laughs> yeah. So you usually got to pay attention to the other factors there. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, I do want people to look up how to actually uh, look at their hip-to-waist circumference, how to measure that at home, because that will help give you a, a BMI indication or a biomass index. And by improving that BMI, you will lower your C-reactive protein as well. And a lot of times... There, um, you do need the anti-inflammatory diet, and you do need the increase in exercise to actually uh, achieve that, or the fiber. So, mm-hmm. the 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 recipe for C-reactive protein to go down is actually a great recipe for the majority of the population mm-hmm. in general. So it's it's a good one uh, across the board. So even if you don't have high CRP, um, if your hip to waist ratio is off a, a little bit, then you know that this is a good uh, protocol just in general. I'd like to mention something about the testing on this because I just had yeah. a patient come in where the lab, you know, every, I should say this first, every lab, whether it's a hospital, a lab that we use, will have their standard ranges. Those standard ranges are not consistent across labs. This person came in from Mayo, for instance, and their normal CRP on this lab, Mayo said was anything below six was normal. For us, my preference is below 0.5. Yeah. For sure, you know, below 1, below 0.5 is better. Anything above 1, then, is still considered an inflammatory risk. But yeah. certain tests, and this isn't necessarily any doctor's fault, right, but certain um, lab companies or locations are going to make you think it's fine when really, and I, from a functional, ideal perspective, it's not even close. Yeah. And it's a sign of inflammation. If there's inflammation is one of the 12... Um, influencers of our health and that's a, another podcast we'll probably do one day is just to go over the 12 influences of, of health mm-hmm. but inflammation is one of them if you can reduce or optimize your inflammatory mechanisms inside your body your health improves greatly yes. so uh, yeah I agree I agree with Dr. Josh on that one as far as just the the ratios and also uh, there's there's a difference between high sensitive C-reactive protein and uh, the regular C-reactor protein. So that's why some of the lab values might be a little bit different too. Mm-hmm. So either way, C-reactor protein is one of those things, the lower the lower better. better. Yep, mm-hmm. lower the better. Yes. 
I think at some point we need to do a what is inflammation podcast yes, because sure. that's yeah. a, that's a term that we throw around a lot, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people sit there and think I have no idea what inflammation that's really a great is. Point. Yeah. We don't have time to do that now. Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you want to say about CRP? Had your list. I don't have that in front of me. So is there anything else you want to touch on from your CRP? No. List? For those that are listening, if you're just taking notes, I'm going to read it again because of the, just the benefit of the lifestyle. Uh, for CRP, you want to decrease the omega. To decrease C-reactive protein, you want to uh, add in omega-3 fish oils, fiber, moderate to intense exercise, vitamin C, anti-inflammatory diet. Drop inches around your midsection or weight loss specific to the midsection. That's the hip-to-waist ratio stuff. Improve your sleep. Lower your stress. Sexual activity, uh, along with uh, fixing potential deficiencies of vitamin A, C, D, or K, and then coffee and green tea many times have to be decreased. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right, how much time do we have? Do we want to do one more? Do you want to do yeah. a few more? Let's get one more. Let's do one more. Let's do yeah. the impaired vitamin D metabolism. We talked Actually, about we'll do two more. There's one. Another there's another one, one I want to yeah, right. talk about. <laughs> okay. Which one the, do you the vitamin D, yeah, uh, The vitamin D metabolism one is pretty relevant right now to uh, what we're going through, and it's a quicker conversation, I think, usually. Don't say that. Nah, actually, it's not. Uh, yeah. yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. So some people, I just had this this week, yeah. where I had a person who was taking 10,000 IUs of vitamin D and uh, had been on that uh, for six months. Now, they were only supposed to do it for two months, but they were so concerned about COVID that they stayed at the higher level. So we ordered labs to say, okay, I don't want you overdoing it. Yeah. They were still deficient. Really? Wow. And so uh, with that deficiency, one of the things that can cause that is lead toxicity. You have to think lead toxicity. Now, sometimes people have a genetic disorder, a VDR receptor disorder, genetically, where, they're, where they just have to stay on higher doses. But usually 10,000 is enough to compensate for that. So when you see that, the first thing I thought of was lead toxicity. Now, this person happened to be men- menopausal which is relevant because lead is stored in bone. And as you lose bone mass, lead can actually be liberated and can start to flood the system, actually decreasing the ability to have normal vitamin D. And we see a lot of people, elderly people, they need vitamin D. It's one of the main markers of of doing well against uh, seasonal flu, uh, against COVID, against other infections. We need Markers. I remember early on you and I uh, uh, talking, Dr. Josh, about what we're seeing, and you commented on how the literature at the time was uh, showing that uh, it basically, I think it was 33 or 34 was the vitamin D marker that if you're above that, yeah. your outcomes are better. Yeah. And so we have to look at what are the things that actually impair vitamin D um, absorption and, and uh, conversion and, and utilization, and lead toxicity is one of those sneaky ones, and and we've cleaned up our environment, but a lot of women who are menopausal in particular, or even men suffering from osteoporotic scenarios, they grew up in an era era where leaded gasoline was used a lot, where leaded paint was used a lot. And if you're living in a home, still an older home uh, with leaded paint, uh, you can still be getting exposed to that. We, we also have some other sources of lead, a lot of toys that come from other foreign countries that have less... Uh, Strict guidelines like China, there's uh, there there's lead in some of the children's toys and stuff. So, so understanding where lead exposure is is important. But if you are taking vitamin D and your levels just don't go up, and you're taking well, high normal doses, which yeah, five, is ten. five to ten thousand, 
and it's not going up, there's something impairing that vitamin D. Yeah. I think the one other thing that I think about is fat metabolism as well. Mm-hmm. And I've had a few people, especially with gallbladder compromise or vitamin D, If you vitamin D is a type of vitamin that's fat-soluble, which means it has to mix in fat to be absorbed. And some people, when they struggle with fatty meals, things like that, if their gallbladder, the gallbladder is the, is the organ that, that holds and concentrates bile. It helps you with fat absorption. Some people, if it's not the lead part too, can have issues with vitamin D absorption because they just can't absorb fat. Yes. That's another big thing that we see. Yeah, and that a lot of times those people have carnitine deficiencies or lymphatic problems because mm-hmm. the lymph system helps to transport the fat. And so you'll see when their lymph system gets congested, they'll feel bloated and full a lot, and they will even get headaches at times. Um, but you'll actually see, even with a clean diet, their cholesterol start to go up and their HDLs go down because of the lymph problem. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you have... It gets diagnosed as metabolic syndrome uh, quite a bit, but the reality is it's a lymphatic congestion scenario. So the lymph system's kind of clogged, which which heavy metals can also contribute to, uh, as can stress, lack of exercise and movement, a whole bunch of other factors. That's another whole uh, uh, podcast on the lymph stuff. But it's important to to recognize the things that can impact your vitamin D. Vitamin D is such an important uh, vitamin. It's also a hormone. And so it's so important for our body that I think we could do a whole show just on vitamin D yeah. and all the different things that uh, that can impact it. So maybe not a quick uh, gem, but <laughs> but the lead twenty five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> the lead snuck that snuck in on me. That one I found a few years back, mm-hmm. and it was a game changer for one of my patients. Yeah. And I, funny enough, I just recently ran into it again um, yeah. this this week. Well, so. when we do the heavy metal testing that we mentioned with the uranium, we do see lead more than you would anticipate. Yes. It does show up. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it affects a lot of other areas. Our memory, it's linked to a lot of different uh, um, other areas of dysfunction. And a lot of times, especially I bring up menopause, it can happen any time in life. We've had lead toxicity in 20-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, with menopausal women in particular, where bone losses start, uh, where they get the, the menopause brain, if you will, a lot of times it is liberation of lead from the bone that's actually contributing to that. Yeah. Okay, the last one I wanted to do is talk about rheumatoid arthritis because uh, we're, I'm actually seeing a lot of that right now, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot more. Um, rheumatoid, it, we always think autoimmune with rheumatoid, but I also want practitioners out there and the people out there to think cardiovascular, periodontal disease, and Lyme. Those are three other triggers, and specifically the Lyme and the periodontal uh, component are sneaky. The cardiovascular one, there's also a scenario there where it's um, small, I'm going to call it th- you know, things like mycoplasma and Lyme can also influence in a cardiovascular nature that then triggers the, the uh, actual RA. But there is a component there of those three things. So you want to look at assessing and correcting uh, those three areas. And here at Synapse, I know we, do, uh, we don't do we do anything with the periodontal disease other than uh, thermography that actually catches a lot of periodontal disease, and then we refer to a, uh, a holistic a dentist usually for uh, treatment. Yeah. I think one thing that I've seen, especially as it pertains to testing for RA, is the, the standard stuff is a rheumatoid factor or an a- ANA antibody yeah. test. There's another test that we sometimes run. I believe it's called anti-CCP. 
Yes. I don't have it in front of me, so sorry if I don't have that 100% correct. That, that is a bit more specific, and we've had people come in with RA that either don't have that tested or had it tested and that was negative, but the assumption was still RA. This is where I think about these other issues, especially when there's not an obvious diagnosis for the autoimmune part. And these can coexist, too. You Absolutely. can have infections and the autoimmune, but there are times where it's not autoimmune. It's an infection like Lyme disease mimicking RA because Lyme likes to destroy joints, just like rheumatoid arthritis likes to destroy joints. And we see that misdiagnosed a lot. You, can, you see the same thing with other autoimmune diseases like lupus and even multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Where people, when we see this a lot. When people come in and they say, well, they think I have this, but the testing wasn't very conclusive. That always makes me uncomfortable about infections in particular. Yeah, there's a lot of diagnoses that it, you get diagnosed by exclusion. Basically, mm-hmm. because we can't say it's all these other things, we're going to put you in this category, mm-hmm. which means they don't have as specific uh, tests to measure it. And those are the ones that kind of, you got to be careful because they can sneak in there and then you are basing a lot of decisions off of a label yeah. that may or may not be uh, as, as true. It's definitely it's going to be consistent, but you've got to be open to what's the root cause, what set this up in the first place. Even if it is just autoimmune. I mean, the yeah, root exactly. there too. Because the medical treatment for these autoimmune diseases are not typically root cause type solutions. There can we squash your immune function so you don't get a flare-up, that, that has consequences. Yeah. Where our goal is, what are the things that are causing the immune dysfunction or the, the, the destruction? Can we fix that? Well, and interesting enough, uh, in a lot of the RA labs, um, at some point, C-reactive protein will be high as well. Yeah. And so the list we just gave for C-reactive protein can be helpful for a lot of people with a diagnosis of RA as well as you look for the periodontal disorders, the Lyme, and the cardiovascular complications. It's actually the, um, the ratio between ESR and CRP yeah. will often tell, will clue you in on um, autoimmune because people with autoimmune will have a higher likelihood of having inflammation show up as a test called ESR yeah. or SED rate. Um, even if the CRP is high, the ratio will be higher, so the ESR will be higher. That's the, often not tested either. We get, that on, we get those markers both on our testing. Yeah. Well, and we yeah, and then yeah, you f- you have a spreadsheet that figures I out do. the uh, the ratio. <laughs> Doctor Josh, if you haven't been listening uh, from the beginning, loves his spreadsheet. So he has a spreadsheet for everything. Almost not, not quite. Not I, quite. If I had the time, I would. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for those gems. Um, the one thing I just want to again say is that these gems do help us in in clue seeking, and what we mean by that is a lot of times. Uh, right now, we have so much information out there that we have to try and piece things together as practitioners and even yourself. And a lot of people go and do the work themselves, and these gems help with you know, narrowing down the, the categories of what we need to look at and oftentimes then help us find the root cause, which usually boil down to some something we've been exposed to or something within our diet or lifestyle and then potentially some genetic factors. But the, this clue-seeking helps. So if you guys have gems that you've uh, seen out there, send them in at info at officialsynapse.com and uh, just say gems for the podcast. And, uh, again, if you have podcast topics you want us to talk about, go ahead and do that. Did I say something wrong? Marquis looking yes. at me. I said something wrong. <laughs> what did you say earlier, Josh? So go to the website. Oh, yeah. go to the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. Either so, way, we'll get it. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Whatever is easier for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, I was getting that look where I'm like, okay, I'm saying something I'm not supposed to be saying. <laughs> and I thank you for your time uh, and uh, look forward to these podcasts uh, uh, weekly here. So we'll we'll be back. Uh, everyone, stay healthy and uh, keep moving, keep breathing, and we'll we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Nips podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.